welcome to another episode of Beckett's Babies. We're your hosts, Sam Collier and Sarah Cho. And today we have a wonderful guest on the show. Her name is Beth Hyland. She is a playwright and a songwriter based in Chicago. Her plays and musicals have been produced and developed regionally in the UK and at the Stephen Joseph Theater and Octagon Theater and around the US at Steppenwolf Lookout, Theaters, oh, Actress Theater of Louisville, the Earth, First Floor, The Passage, Broken Nose, The Sound, and others. She is a playwright in residence and co-founder of The Sound. Uh, welcome, Beth. Welcome Hi. to the show. Hi, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. <laughs> Thanks for being here in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> here, I mean virtually here. Yes. Safe from a safe distance. <laughs> <laughs> so... We like to start our show by asking all our guests this this once in a lifetime question. <laughs> uh, tell us your earliest memory. What was your life like before the theater? Wow. Okay. Great. Um, the earliest memory. Uh, I think I was about two and a half, um, and I was at my aunt and uncle's wedding um, in Miami. And I, I typically was a pretty well-behaved kid is my impression uh, growing up. But on this day, I was apparently like extraordinarily bad and just like wreaking <laughs> havoc throughout the duration of the wedding. So the memory is that I was outside on a little like path and I was uh, saw this one of those sort of like big circular like orb lights that uh, people have outside to light pathways. And I was drawn to it like a moth to a flame. And so I was approaching it with both my little hands out and then touched it. And it did indeed burn both my hands. And <laughs> so then the memory shifts such that I'm like horizontal, like Superman, because my mom scooped me up under her arm and uh, marched me into the bathroom and ran my hands under some cold water while yelling at me uh, pretty extensively. So <laughs> that is that is memory number one. Wow. Um, yeah, truly, uh, truly painful. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's it's sort of hard to say in some way what my life was like before theater because I was a pretty hardcore theater kid starting when I was like nine or ten, kind of. Uh, my mom had a bunch of um, Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, CDs of like original cast recordings of musicals, and so I just kind of like. I was just, I was always pretty obsessed and I wanted to be an actor um, until like midway through college uh, when I went to the National Theater Institute um, at the Eugene O'Neill uh, in Connecticut um, and took a, everybody had to take a playwriting class. So uh, Donna DiNovelli uh, taught it. She's amazing. Uh, I think she teaches at the NYU um, Musical Theater MFA. Um, and it was kind of a little bit of a like lightning bolt where I was like, Oh my God, like I think I like this even more than acting. And it was also that I really did not want to do um, all of the extremely difficult movement and uh, like Russian <laughs> acrobatics classes. <laughs> so my like physical, extreme physical laziness uh, was a boon for me in terms of being a playwright. So oh yeah. So I've, been, <laughs> so I've been writing since then. <laughs> Those actors just like, Oof. Knowing their body. Oh, <laughs> I was that was I was like, yikes! No, thank you. <laughs> Not interested. Beth, oh, was there like a moment um, or something you read in that first playwriting class that really made an impression on you? That um, 
kind of encapsulated your reasons for wanting to go into playwriting? That's such a great question. Um, it actually wasn't in the playwriting class. It was in a, um, a Chekhov class, oh. like a Chekhov um, workshop with this wonderful professor named David Jaffe, who teaches at the University of Connecticut um, and used to run NTI. Um, he did this Chekhov workshop with us. Uh, and I was like really like skeptical and kind of rolling my eyes a little bit because my only familiarity with Chekhov was like a really like quite bad uh, production in school and I was like this is, <laughs> of what was, play like, of three sisters okay um that that I was just like this is miserable why do they say it's a comedy it's not funny it's seven hours long like everyone is weeping the entire time <laughs> they're on stage uh-huh. I hate this um and so David Jaffe I remember said I think it is a, a direct Chekhov quote where he said that in Chekhov's plays um, and in life, uh, you know, people are just sitting down to dinner and eating dinner. And meanwhile, their uh, happiness is uh, starting or ending and their lives are falling apart. Mm. Um, and that just like uh, struck me as incredibly kind of beautiful and true. And, and so as part of um, the reason that I love uh, theater um, and love storytelling. And so, yeah, that was really like... Uh, that stuck with me. I think about that quote a lot. Um, so after college, what happens? You move? Did you move to? Yeah, I moved to Chicago. I, uh, I had two professors at Kenyon um, who both had been uh, in Chicago before they came and taught there. Um, mm-hmm. And they were pretty like, they, they brainwashed us pretty hard. They were like, <laughs> they were like you got to go there. So a, a number of my, of my classmates did still go to New York or LA or elsewhere, but a lot of us uh, went to Chicago. Um, and I moved in with um, uh, two friends who I had met uh, at the National Theater Institute. And so, yeah, so that I've been here now for six and a half. Wow. Six and a half years. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Wild. <laughs> Rounds to 10. I'm kind of curious for people who are listening who aren't in Chicago, if you can pitch it to them as why, like either either what your professors told you about why you should move to Chicago or now that you've lived there for, you know, and worked there for a number of years, can you give your like <laughs> elevator pitch for why yeah, people yeah, should yeah. consider Chicago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chicago. Seasonal depression. And there are hot dogs there, too. Um, no, that, that, is, that is true, unfortunately. No, um, Chicago does rule. Um, their pitch to us and what was appealing to me was that even though it is a major city and even though it's, you know, a, an incredibly kind of huge and certainly like saturated theater market, um, that there is a that it is small enough that there is a real community feel. Um, and that you can actually kind of like get your hands around it in some way, um, that people are supportive of each other, that people are like, are really interested in, um, building relationships and supporting other people. Um, and I have found that like by and large to be true, um, to the extent that that can be, you know, of course there are exceptions and there are times when that's not true. And I would also say, um, honestly, that, my elevator pitch based on my experience is that you can, um, it is just much more financially feasible to, mm-hmm. um, make work here than in some other places. You don't need to have three day jobs. You can just have one day job. You don't need to, you know, you can rent rehearsal space. You can put up a show for a much less prohibitive amount of money. And I think that that, while there are also, there, there are, 
but this is by no means like perfect and there are still huge issues with um who actually has access to theater based on class privilege and a variety of other types of privilege um i think it broadens the spectrum of who is able to make their own work Mm -hmm. here because it's just more affordable it's just cheaper um and your standard of living can be higher here i would say so in Chicago, I'd love to know, you know, what are some challenges that you found yourself when you produce your own work? You know, what are the pros and cons? Totally. Um, yeah, I feel like when you're self-producing, the, the pros and the cons are both that you have control of everything. So that there are some wonderful pros in that in terms of, you know, you can kind of make sure that your play happens in the way that you want it to. You can have more control over casting. You can be in the room as much as you want you get to control what the poster looks like you know you get to you get to make sure that the reviewers are emailed you get to um pitch the play to an audience how in whatever way you want um which is wonderful but then the cons are also that it's the buck stops with you so there's no one else to blame and when things don't work out you can't blame anyone else it's on you um it, it also i would say it's a challenge that you have to wear like 10 million hats and it can be really kind of difficult to shift from the headspace and the presence that you need to be an artist in the room to then suddenly have to be a producer in the room because there's some issue with the space or you know the programs didn't get printed or somebody didn't put the beer that you're selling like in the cooler last night so you have to go do that so you have to be able to balance um your artistic self and your practical self in a way that can be really challenging and I would say also that like two things that I think you need to be or two qualities that you need to have when you're self-producing especially when you're really new to a city are that you need to be patient and you need to not take things personally Mm -hmm. um and I would say that I uh when I started was incredibly impatient and took everything (laughs) personally and so tremendous do as I say not as I do because it just takes it just takes longer than you hope it will. It takes longer to um, for people to get to know your work, for people to have an interest in you, for people to want to take a chance on you. Um, and also people are just busy. Like I, I would just mm-hmm. take it incredibly personally when some, you know, very busy person who I had met maybe once didn't want to come to my stage reading at 10:30 a.m. on a Sunday. I would be like, How dare <laughs> <Right>. they? <laughs> and now, looking back from even the you know, relatively small amount of perspective I have now, I completely understand. People are just busy, and everyone is everyone is trying to make their own things happen. So, challenge I face what you what you just said is that yeah, everyone is doing their own thing. They're like everyone mm-hmm. has their own schedule. They're trying to do what they're like what you're trying to do in their own right. thing or whatever that is, and so. And almost always it's like we're coming together probably for free. <laughs> so yep. it's like – and so it. I guess my question here is like how, how do you like um, entice people to want to work for – with you or on your project um, for free? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, so often, like, not only for free, and even if you're paying a stipend, which I think is incredibly, incredibly important, and like, always believe in paying artists, if you add up all of the costs of a rehearsal process, 
so sometimes, especially at the very beginning when you're brand, brand new, yeah, it's maybe not even only for free, but someone is actually losing money to, <laughs> to work on your work. That that's a really good question. A really important one. And I think, I think it's so important to keep in mind that, um, people are doing you a favor. People are doing something incredibly generous for you by, reading your work, by rehearsing your work, by directing or designing your work, that you are not owed anyone else's time or talent mm-hmm. or effort. And I think always approaching it from that perspective um, and sort of sh- showing those people your appreciation, f- both financially, but also emotionally, and also just in terms of your behavior with them is the best way to kind of make that work a positive experience. I remember the first reading of a play that I ever, ever did here. I wrote it for the cast of this production of A Midsummer Night's Dream that I was in when I was still acting. Um, And I just wrote a character for everyone in this really kind of strange little play that was about um, a group of actors acting in those shows that they do at amusement parks. Um, (laughs) And so like to, to get everyone to do that, I bought everyone pitchers of beer and a bunch of fries at this restaurant and like spent my entire stipend for the show printing um printing scripts <laughs> like because I think there were like 13 people or something like that so it cost like a hundred dollars to print all this stuff at UPS and like but because I was able to kind of convey to people that they were doing me a tremendous favor they were all totally down and then a lot of those people have been my like most frequent collaborators in Chicago since then oh that's Um, really cool yeah so that was that's like a it was you know it's worth it's worth it to kind of pay people back in that way well and it captures something that I think um that is so important which is that you need to invest in your collaborators and in your relationships um and and that those i i'm trying to talk about this in a way that's not like about capitalism and money (laughs) but i'm but i'm kind of falling short so i'm just gonna say like those early investments will continue to pay dividends (laughs) for the rest (laughs) of your Mm -hmm. i don't know artistic life yes um yeah i wonder if there's a better metaphor i I have to think about that (laughs) Yeah. Maybe maybe you can think about it like planting seeds and then yeah. those relationships will bear fruit. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yes, absolutely. 100%. So um, I wonder if we can shift gears a little bit and talk about how you stay inspired. What keeps you going and what keeps you creating and making art, um, particularly when, you know, I think all of us as artists have had those moments or even years where where we feel kind of less inspired. So how do you, how do you keep yourself going? Totally. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think like it's been important for me to acknowledge that like I am not a a robot and that Mm. my, and that feeling inspired is not like a a computer program that I can just activate whenever I want it to. Mm -hmm. And so like giving myself grace and acknowledging that like trying to have an entire artistic practice in addition to working full time for money and health insurance is actually really hard. Um, And like Mm -hmm. giving myself grace and allowing myself to acknowledge that that's hard and that I'm doing something difficult. And so that if there are times when I feel burned out or I just need to watch 
Vanderpump rules for a little bit and or just look out the window or just see my friends that that's totally okay and actually is really important in preventing feeling seriously burned out and not being able to write for longer. So that's, yeah. that's, that's part of it, 100%. And then in terms of actively staying inspired, I feel like the, the flip side of that coin is I think that like, I think like work begets work some, in some sometimes um, and that kind of staying active in your community and staying active in art kind of creates momentum for you. So I would say that like seeing as much theater as I, you know, feasibly and financially can is huge. I always feel, I always learn something like from Mm. any play, even if I really don't care for it, even if it doesn't click with me, there's always something that I I learn um, from seeing other people's work. Uh, But then also like staying engaged in art outside of theater so like reading and uh seeing concerts and seeing movies and watching good new tv shows like all of that I think um makes me feel inspired to to write and to practice my art a teacher told me that you know when you're watching don't feel like you're wasting time when you're like sitting there watching like oh man I'm just gonna be watching like 20 hours of reality (laughs) tv right now and I think (laughs) whatever you watch with like a critical eye like even if you're watching a 20 hours of like a reality TV and you're reacting to it, notice that reaction. Like why, why are you reacting this way? And like, cause that's how I just feel like mm-hmm. that's just material there. That, that re that constant reaction. Um, totally. Yeah. Yeah. You really never know like where the germ of your next idea is going to come from. And like, oh, it, yeah. can, it can come from the real housewives of New York city. Like, absolutely. <laughs> there's, there's enough drama there for a thousand epic poems. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, so how do you balance, let's say both work in your creative life? Um, like what's currently working for you or what, what are some tips that you found, um, that worked for you along the way that you kind of had to figure out? Yeah, I think like, I think it's always a balancing act. And I think some people get incredibly lucky and find a, a day job that really, really works for them that they genuinely like and like going to and find rewarding. Um, and a lot of people don't. Um, I would say most people don't. I think there there always tend to be, they're always things that you wish were different about your day job. That's been my experience anyway, so far. Mm -hmm. So I think it's about just kind of like continuing that to, to try to find that like Goldilocks job and knowing that like what works for you wouldn't necessarily work for someone else. So, um, for me, I, it's, it's worked the best for me to have a day job, a nine to five job. Um, it's been really crucial for me to have a job that, um, has health insurance so I can go to therapy. That's really big. Um, and feel very like privileged to be able to have that, uh, to have that happen for myself. But some people need like a job where they're on their feet or a job where they, um, where it's not nine to five so they can audition or so they can write during the day. I think it's just kind of about like really checking in with yourself and figuring out what works for you. So also some people say, a lot of people say, I feel like people who like write about their own writing on Twitter are really into saying like, you must write every day. And if not, you're mm. an idiot. <laughs> like, and that just, that doesn't work for me. That's never worked mm-hmm, for me. So mm-hmm. I write on the weekends. Um, and the, I kind of then get to look forward to the weekends as my writing time. Um, mm-hmm. And after I come home from work, I don't 
need to put the pressure on myself to shift into a creative headspace. So yeah, just, just knowing that like what works for you is okay, actually. And that like advice from any other people is only as helpful as it happens to be for you. And you don't need to do what other people are doing. I think one of the things that's really, um, that feels to artists like they're kind of going against the grain of the culture sometimes is that uh, in this moment in the U.S., people, one of the biggest sources of identity is people's jobs, right? It's like people, people's identity and kind of self, um, in a way, like self-worth is really tied to what their job is. And for artists who often form their identity through their art, and not necessarily their day job. I think it can feel a lot of times like um, to a lot of people like they're they're not a real artist. Totally. <laughs> you know, if they if they are spending their days, you know, surviving and making money and um, and so I'm just kind of wondering if you can speak to that. Like, has your thinking on that changed since you? started out or do you have any advice for people who might feel like they they don't they don't count as real theater artists yet because they're still just doing it on weekends yeah I mean gosh not not to keep harping on like the, the love of my life and on Chekhov but like he, you know he, <laughs> yeah. he was a, he was a doctor you know what I mean like yeah. they, if you go back through history there is there's just an incredibly rich history of artists needing to have money-making jobs well into their careers throughout their entire careers. Um, And there is literally no shame in that at all. And I would say that like, I am definitely someone who is, as I said, like takes things pretty personally and is very, um, I have a Pisces moon, you know, like, what can I say? Like very, (laughs) as a Pisces very attuned to perceived slights I will say Um, and I will obsess about things random people said um that that made me feel you know kind of less than as an artist things Mm -hmm. you know well-meaning family members said things a random person in the store or a coworker, or a Lyft driver whoever like any that anyone says to you that make you feel kind of small and less than as an artist and I, I would say a to just kind of uh just blow those people a little kiss in your mind and just know that like, A, people just say stuff literally to say stuff. People Mm -hmm. are not, (laughs) in in most cases, people are not actually trying to demean you or your feelings when they say, um, you know, oh, so like, why haven't you done anything on Broadway? That's kind of like something. (laughs) I've had had family members say to me, you know, who I love and this is wonderful. Like, Oh, Bethy, like, why don't you just go in, go into Steppenwolf and just give and say, here I am and give them your play. And and so you just have to, you just have to say to yourself, those people mean well, they love me and they want the best for me. They do not know what they're talking about. And I can just let what they say roll off my back. Um, And I would also say that just kind of too sometimes just repeating to yourself that like your day job is something that allows you to practice your art. And Mm -hmm. so you can be grateful for it in that way. Um, And it it does not define who you are as a person. It does not mean that you're less than because you don't, you know, you're not making money off 
commissions or, or supporting yourself fully by commissions. So yeah, that that's just something that's like, it's tough because as you said, like people really do define themselves by their jobs in America. Um, and you can just kind of nod and smile and let other people think that way. And you think your own way. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. that's so true. I hate mingling with people when they're like, what do you do? Like, yeah. what do you do? And I'm like, <laughs> all right, here's my life story if you want to right. know. Right. <laughs> like, um, oh, yeah. And I also don't like, um, I, I don't know what it is, but it's, Sam, You, I think you like said something that just triggered me something. Oh, um, gosh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't know. It's just like, it's, the it's like things like from facebook linkedin what you know your title what is your Mm. title it's this 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 culture that we live in like we have to and i i don't know for me i'm always constantly having to figure it out because like because if people want to access me it's like online it's the public space you know and it's like, how do I want to be perceived here? And mm-hmm. like, I'm, you know, I'm doing I'm doing different things now than versus ten years ago. <laughs> you know, I'm not. So it's like, I don't know. Like, I always go back and forth. Like, do I put that I'm an I got an MFA or not? <laughs> like, do I that, like right? Which self am I in this moment? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, what are you currently working on, Beth? Right at this time, I know before we started recording. Um, we talked about your play, uh, Dr. Broner's play. Could you talk yeah. about that? Yeah. So um, so I uh, was scheduled to have a production of this play uh, I'm writing called All One, the Dr. Broner's play. Um, and because of uh, COVID, we are <laughs> currently uh, – it is currently – I don't mean to laugh. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean hey. you – truly, what can you do but laugh? Um, <laughs> <laughs> laugh or cry. Um it, so it is currently for the production is currently postponed um, until hopefully later in the summer. Um, exact dates TBD. Um, it was supposed to open April seventeenth, um, and so what we are going to do is we are going to do a Zoom um, stage reading of it uh, in late April, um, which I'm very excited about. Um, That's so but cool. yeah, but so it, the play kind of came about from. I just always like I the first time I saw a bottle of Dr. Bronner's was at my my cousin. I was staying with my cousin when I was in college, my older cousins, and I saw the bottle and the text on the label was just so wild and like bizarre that I like almost had this feeling of like, is this allowed? Like, <laughs> is that our our labels on soaps allowed? What is this? What's happening here? So I had always been kind of fascinated by it. And, then a couple and this ago, is for people, I should just say, for people yeah. who don't know, this is a, a brand of soap that has, yeah. um, <laughs> that has like lots and lots of text on it. Yeah, the labels of the bottles of soap are covered in like tiny um, white writing. Um, They're espousing the religious beliefs of this man, Emmanuel Bronner, who called himself a doctor. Fun fact, he was not a doctor. Um, <laughs> he, that's fact number one. Um, but he, yeah, espousing his religious beliefs, which he sums up as um, all one God faith. Um, and so the label is covered in religious teachings um, and a bunch of like really kind of mangled plagiarism of a variety of poets, uh, philosophers, religious figures, and um, 
songwriters. Uh, so I uh, one day finally just Googled him to be like, truly, what was this guy's deal? Um, and his life story felt like it contained all of these elements of um, things that I had been thinking about really intensely over the past couple of years, um, things about uh, empathy and unity and whether unity is even a worthwhile or a positive thing to strive for and how, you know, is it possible to have empathy for someone else without kind of erasing their humanity in some way? Or is it possible to have empathy with someone and truly see them and see the way that they're different from you? Um, things about kind of mental illness and genius and the line between those things, um, things obviously about cleanliness. Uh, and so, mm. yeah, so the play, a fun thing about the play is that it contains um, writing by every member of the ensemble as well. Um, so it's it's kind of co-written with all of them. The ensemble is currently 10 people. Um, so it's a really kind of fun and like sad and uh exciting kind of collage of themes and voices and um explorations of this wild wild gentleman and his uh soap and his religion i do think it's particularly delightful (laughs) that during this covid crisis you have a play coming out about soap i know Um, can you believe (laughs) could you have planned it any better than that it it, the, this was all part of my master plan. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, it, it's completely wild. And, and it was so kind of striking and rehearsed. So the, the structure of the part of the structure of the play is that the cast. So the, the bottle, these bottles of soap claim that there are 18 uses of the soap. Um, <laughs> and so the part of part of the structure of the play or the game of the play is that the cast performs all 18 of the uses um, during the course of the play. And so one of them, obviously, uh, one of the uses is washing your hands. And so just from we started rehearsals like three weeks ago, four a month ago, and um, f- from washing your hands going from something that was completely innocuous to suddenly becoming this thing that feels in some ways literally yeah. life or death was really wild and really surprising. Wow. Um, yeah. What's like the most surprising and unexpected of the 18 uses that people Great would never question. guess? I would say um, um, controlling dust mites is, is one. <laughs> That's, so part part of the play is kind of about uh, so, something the play is touching on is is actually capitalism and kind of a lot of the lies and uh, fibs built into capitalism and so it addresses that like the play does touch on the fact that like there are not really eighteen uses like a lot of a lot of them are like he counts like washing your body as one but then also counts like washing your face as a separate use and it's like that's the same <laughs> your face is on your body come on um, so yeah yeah and c- killing c- killing ants and aphids is another use. Wow. Yeah. Vicious. Is is Dr. Bronner still alive? He is not. He died in the 90s. Oh, the 90s. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, this play sounds fascinating. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I can't wait to watch the Zoom stage reading. Yes. 
I think it's going to be great. And the, the, the proceeds, I think there's going to be a suggested donation for the tickets and the proceeds are going to go both um, to the Passage Theater, which is an incredibly wonderful young storefront theater in Chicago who has um, committed to paying all artists involved, uh, regardless of what happens uh, with the production. Oh, and that's also, amazing. Yeah. And also part of the proceeds are going to go um, to the cast directly, many of whom are in the hospitality industry or in other industries that have been kind of shut down by COVID. So um, I'm really, really excited. The cast and crew are absolutely wonderful, such amazing, smart, generous artists. And um, yeah, it's directed by Sammy Zysel, I should also say, um, who's an absolutely incredible director and one of my best friends. And um, it's just been a joy. And it's been really, it's been really nice, actually, to have something to kind of think about and focus on that isn't mm. the virus. Um, yeah. And so I'm, yeah. I'm really, we're going to start kind of virtual rehearsals again. I think this week. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to them. Um, so I guess before we wrap up to our last uh, segment of the show, last question, um, maybe if you want, you can answer both one or the other, both. Ooh, okay. Kind of <laughs> but um, so, and so what advice would you give to our listeners who are interested in, creating new work, self-producing their own show, their play. Um, and tied to that is like, how would you define what it means to be an artist in the 21st century? Yeah. Yeah. Those are such beautiful questions. Um, I think I'm going to focus on the first one because I feel like I, uh, will sound like a ding dong if I try to answer the second one because it's such a, <laughs> such a deep you can, end. You, you, might end, you might end up answering it yourself. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope so. The, the true, maybe the friends along the way were the ones that answered the question. Um, uh, okay, I feel I want to steal, and I guess maybe this is, uh, you know, not appropriate of me, but I do want to steal a piece of advice that I think about all the time and like makes me tear up because it's so beautiful um, from Andre de Shields, the actor who, an incredible actor who um, won the Tony this past year for Hadestown. Um, and he is in a much <laughs> better position to give advice than me. Um, uh, and he, he gave three pieces of advice in his speech, but the first one was um, at, for an art for artists to surround yourself with people whose eyes light up when they see you coming, um, uh, which I literally am tearing up just saying it because I think, um, you know, this is not an original thought, but this is a really difficult industry um, and trying mm. to trying to make work happen um, can be, you know, unbelievably rewarding and beautiful, but also incredibly crushing and depressing and, and difficult. And so if you surround yourselves with people who truly make you feel seen as an artist and also valued and loved as a person, I think that's kind of the only way to get through this industry with your your spirit and your soul kind of intact. Um, and I would also say, kind of going along with that, something that I kind of tell myself a lot, um, especially when I'm feeling kind of blocked or feeling stuck, um, is that you can only write what you can write. Um, and so there, there are sort of two ways of looking at that. One of which is you, you can't write what someone else can write. If you're feeling really insecure or a little bit jealous because you saw something, you know, perfect, you saw a play that you thought was impeccable and you wish you could write like that, you can't write like anyone else because your life and your experience and everything about your individual self, um, define 
what you can write and how and how you write. But then the other part of that is that you're the only person who can can write what you write. So I think as I think if you make work that you like, if you write the type of play that you want to see, and if you make work that makes you laugh or makes you cry or you know gives you an experience that you want an audience member to have, then you're succeeding regardless of what your title is or what job you have to have or anything else. I think that's like, that's kind of all you can focus on. Oh, I'm just sitting so in that, beautiful. just sitting in that oh, advice. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Well, Beth, before we move to glistens, yes. Um, where can our listeners find you? Oh, thanks guys. This has been, it's been so fun to, I felt like part of me has felt so kind of like, is it even okay to talk about anything other than the virus right now? But it's, I know. it's really fun to talk about something other than it uh, for the first time in like three weeks. Um, you can find uh, you can find information about my play. We have not set an official date for the um, stage reading of All One, the Dr. Bronner's play quite yet, but you can find it uh, at the Passage Theater I'm literally looking up their website right now to make sure I give it to you. Yes, it is the <laughs> Passage Theater, theater with an RE, the fancy British way, dot com. Um, so information about when that is and how to purchase tickets will be there. Um, and you can also find me on New Play Exchange, certainly, and on my website, which is just bethhighland.com. Almost wanted to say dot net as a joke, but that would not be a good idea because then you would not find me there. <laughs> perfect, perfect. All right, so we'll move on to glistens. <laughs> uh, who wants to start off? Uh, Sam? Um, I will start because I read a story last night in the New York Times that warmed my heart and had nothing to do with coronavirus. And so I Yay! thought I would share it with all of you. A four-year-old girl in Alabama was lost in the woods for two days with her dog, Lucy, and oh was found alive and well and um like happy <laughs> she, <laughs> she, just, she uh this girl she was being watched by a family friend and um wandered away into the woods with her dog and then got lost and like hundreds and hundreds of people were searching for her for 48 hours Fuck. and finally like found her sleeping in a shady grove of the woods uh her dog was with her and um she was like she had a story to tell about her time in the woods that <laughs> was like otherwise to she was like not worried or distressed or crying or anything she was like I can't wait to tell my mom all about my adventures oh so my God. um yeah a bit of good news uh in this terrible time <laughs> that is beautiful. I love that. Oh my gosh. Um, okay, my glisten is you know, during this time of quarantine, um it it I'm like like everyone else, it's just changed our life completely. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, I love I not you know, I don't even want to say love. I don't like it, but I am always a, like a busy person. Like I'm always constantly filling my nights and days of work mm. and I'm like multiple jobs to like multiple projects. My weekends are always busy and to find all this time and not knowing how to fill it has been a challenge, but I, it rekindled some kind of like a new 
love for me again, which is like that I've always wanted to do, but like not really have the time to try to pursue it. But like having the time to work on it now is like is like joke writing in general. Just yeah, just oh, wanting yeah. to improve joke writing and and like you know I used to do like a little bit of open mic stand up, but like I hated that life. But then, but there was a practice of just like writing those jokes and like performing that was like really good. So basically, I'm like. And during this time, I'm like, I'm going to try to come up with, like, a half an hour of stand-up material. Yes. And then perform it to my boyfriend. (laughs) 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 Where basically, I've I've just been, like, pitching all these jokes and, like, bothering him with things. Like, oh, what do you think of this? Like, oh, what do you think of... Here's the punchline. Right now, I just wrote, like... I've been, like, there's this um, workbook-type thing that I had been meaning to, like, look through. And now I have the time to do it. So it's, like joke writing stand-up comedy and like pieces of writing those pieces and stuff and then so it has like all these exercises that come with it so i have all these like 10 to 15 setups no punchline <laughs> and i'm like <laughs> so i'm like and then i'm like so i've just been pitching all these setups to my boyfriend and he's just like okay what's the punchline i'm like I didn't get to that exercise yet. <laughs> but it's just been me trying to like yeah so um it's oh, been cool. fun yeah it's been like fun to just kind of try something new but like something that I want to improve on and something to just focus on and keep myself busy <laughs> yeah workbook is this like I feel like I'm back in elementary school you know like <laughs> yeah. workbooks exercises yeah. and yeah do you know the comedian uh, Maria Bamford Sarah yes yeah, uh-huh. it just made me think of she has that whole special that she did for just her parents in their <laughs> living room it's literally yes. her parents and her dog yes. oh, uh-huh. my gosh. I oh my gosh i love her that is such a that's such a fun idea i hope i you get know, to see your half hour for your boyfriend <laughs> <laughs> so funny they say that um yeah i actually saw um so my theater was doing like last night we did like a pat um like a telethon sort oh, of thing on a video yeah. which i raised men for the theater and actually maria benford was one of the art like the guests that we like she came on oh and she God. did this she did this whole character bit of like i'm just a uh she played this character who who likes to uh recite the 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 less popular bible quotes <laughs> Like, you know, it's like the less obvious. Like nobody quotes this, and like she's just like reciting Bible verses oh that like, nobody, oh nobody, re- nobody quotes. And so I thought it was so funny. I was like laughing my head off. She oh, is the God. greatest. That is so cool that she was yeah. on your telephone. That's amazing. Yeah, it was like oh man, it was fun to watch. Love her. Yeah. Um, um. Yeah, Beth, what's yours? Yeah, I, 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 I. This is like I sort of a weird one that I feel like if if it were not this time, I would be like a book or something or show. Um, but I. The best I felt in the past like week was when I donated some money to some of the theaters and restaurants that I love in Chicago. Mm. Um, and so this is obviously like I am lucky enough as of right now, knock on wood, um, that my income hasn't been affected. I work at a university, so I'm still getting paid. So if you are still getting paid, donating even what feels like a really kind of small amount of money mm-hmm. to especially like a smaller theater or a younger theater that is really going to be hit hard by this. It just felt like so good. I was, yeah. and I, and also some of the restaurants that I really love in my neighborhood, I just went and found their GoFundMes because like all of them have them right now um, and just donated what I could to them. And it felt 
amazing. And I, and it felt like it, it, part, it partly felt amazing because it felt like some semblance of like control in all of this, which is so lacking. Everything kind of feels so out of your control, um, yeah. at least to me. So that felt the best because I want every theater that I love to be able to open up after this and get back to work. And so that was, felt really good. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, listeners, you heard it. Uh, make sure to visit Beth's website to learn more <laughs> about her work. Uh, it's BethHighland.com. Right. And uh, yeah, look out for her play. Yeah. To where should our listeners find you? Just the website? Are you on social? I am. The website is is good. Yeah. The website. The website. <laughs> I, I am. Okay. I am technically a, a new play exchange too. Oh, awesome. Yeah. All right. Cool. Thanks so much, Beth. This was so fun, you guys. Thank you so 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 much. This was the best. Hey, listeners. That was our interview with Beth Highland. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, Sam. What was a big takeaway? Did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it. I thought um, Beth made a really good argument for moving to Chicago and producing your own work. Yeah. Well, and you lived in Chicago. For I a did. Bit. I did. It feels like yeah. a million years ago. Yeah. Well, listeners, you know what to do. Wash your hands. No, just oh, yeah. kidding. For, I mean, no, no, that real. too. For sure. <laughs> Wash your hands. No coughing in the hands and touching people and, like, being crazy. But most importantly, like, share, subscribe. (laughs) Don't add us. (laughs) Oh, and also, um, I just – I read something yesterday about how laughter is really good for your immune system. So Mm. listen to Beckett's Babies. Laugh at how funny we are, especially Sarah. And – you know, it could bo- it could boost your immune system, and then you should share it with your friends to help them laugh and yeah. boost their immune systems. So, laughter, it's it's contagious. Or <laughs> is infectious? Right. It's contagious, just as uh, this virus. Yeah. Oh God, I know. I like I try not to joke about this, but it's just seriously like I'm like trying to cope here. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think it it's a necessary release and mm-hmm. you can cry or you can laugh. Yeah. And laughter yeah. feels good. Yeah. And also liking a podcast, subscribing. It's like the best feeling. <laughs> All right. That's enough of us from us. <laughs> Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>